You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. First time I went to Costa Rica, I encountered a variety of experiences that I had not had before. Uh, heard some things I hadn't heard before, as you would expect when you go to a new country. One of the things I heard that I had not expected to hear came while I was sitting in a coffee shop uh, meeting a local missionary for the first time. He uh, taught at a seminary in Costa Rica and so was involved in training pastors. One of the things he said that uh, surprised me, uh, he said, you know, in the U.S., seminary is kind of a, just a, a part of the pathway to ordination. He said in Costa Rica, seminary is more like survival school. We just have to help them. You know, like these folks are out there in the jungle doing ministry, and we want to help them <laughs> survive a little bit. That was one of the unexpected things that he shared with me. Another of the unexpected things he said, I didn't see this one coming. He said, you know, in the U.S., when you go to church, the one person of the Trinity you're most likely to run into is Jesus. So it's not like that here in Central America. He said, when you go to church in Central America, the person of the Trinity you are most likely to encounter, whose presence is more highly emphasized, is the Holy Spirit. And it got me to thinking. I spent time reflecting. This was years ago, and, and, and that's kind of stuck with me over the years, and I've thought more about it. And it's, it's occurred to me that you know, different Christians in different traditions, in different geographical locations, different languages, tend to emphasize different aspects of the Christian faith. And every time, this is one reason I commend going on international trips, because it's crucial to know that the Holy Spirit is doing different things in, you know, beyond our zip code, if you're able to go. Uh, if not, we want to connect with missionaries. We want to stay in touch with folks around the world and get a sense for what's happening around the world because God is very big and he's doing very big things. And every time I go, I'm surprised by some of the things he's doing. But it got, got me to thinking that, you know, it's easy for me to kind of slide into the normal ways we practice Christianity and the normal ways we talk about our faith and the normal ways, just kind of the things that we assume or presuppose. And it's not until I step out of the normal paths in my life that I'm able to see that not everybody does it the way I do it. And not everybody emphasizes the things I emphasize. And not everybody pays attention to the things we pay attention to. And there's wisdom elsewhere. Now, does that mean we should neglect the work of Jesus to pay attention to the Spirit? No, of course not. What I'm saying is we need... And we need to be reminded that the work of God in our lives is bigger than we typically realize. We need to understand, and not just understand, but embrace the fact that the whole Trinity is unified and working together for us and for our salvation. Redemption is not just something that Jesus accomplishes solo. Say that again. Redemption is not just something that Jesus accomplishes solo. He is crucial, of course. You know me, you know I would never want to denigrate the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we read through Romans, we discover that Jesus is at work along with the Father and the Spirit. We are told that God sends His Son. And so there is this sending work of the Father. And when the Son comes, He does this work of atonement. He deals with sin, we are told. But that's just the beginning of Romans 8. There are verses and verses and verses beyond the deal with sin part. And it's all about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to draw our attention to today as we reflect on this, this big theme about becoming whole and how God heals us and how God heals His good world and is that it takes the whole Trinity to save us. 
Perhaps we could put it this way if we're thinking about the thought flow of Romans chapter 8. Jesus forgives us so the Spirit can transform us. There's an instrumental relationship. There's a purpose relationship. The work of Christ on the cross is for the purpose of the Spirit coming to live within us and empower godliness. The work of Jesus to redeem us, to atone for our sins, is the means or the instrument to the end or the goal of the coming of the Holy Spirit to totally transform our lives. Jesus forgives us, He redeems us, so that the Holy Spirit can do the long-term project of transforming us. The whole Trinity is at work in our salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we'll see is that salvation is bigger than forgiveness, isn't it? A lot bigger. So how does it work? Well, we start with a problem. Problem comes with the law. Paul begins Romans 8 with a great celebration. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he articulates the problem. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here's the problem. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. Now, to understand this weakness of, God, of the law, and it's God's law, so we might think, like, is God's law supposed to be weak? Like, what's going on? God is not weak. Why would the law be weak? Why is someone like Paul uh, saying that God's word, his covenant, his Torah is weak in some way? What's that mean? What's going on there? To understand what's going on, we've got to go way back, rewind all the way to the second book of the Bible, which wouldn't surprise you because we rewind to the second book of the Bible frequently. By this point, you might be able to guess which chapter, 19, where God brings the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai and gives them his covenant, and he gives them his law. And he says, I'm going to make you my people. I want you to be holy kingdom, priestly nation. I want you to be my representatives, and I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to give you, and law isn't really the best word, because when we read law, we think like courtrooms and volumes of legal code. This is more like instruction. Uh, in the ancient Jewish, in the ancient Hebrew world, word Torah was more like instruction and formation. That doesn't mean you can just sort of take it for granted and break it. Uh, there are consequences and penalties. But it's not just like a legal code and everybody's like, got to obey the law. That's not exactly what's going on here. It's this deep in instruction. And if you read through the Old Testament, the Hebrew people love the law. This is God's word. It's his covenant, his oracle. He's entrusted to this. The psalmist says, I love the law and I meditate on it day and night. Who of us can say that? And so God gives these commandments. And the weakness, the problem comes in if we take the wrong, if we, if we have false expectations about what the commandments are supposed to do. If we think the commandments are supposed to save us, like do this and I'll save you, then we have a false expectation about what those commandments are supposed to do. The law was never intended to save. Paul says it can't. Like, that was not the point. It can't do that. It's weak in that capacity, right? Don't covet, don't murder, don't worship other gods. Those commandments in and of themselves have no power to rescue any of us from sin. So what's their function? What do they do? Well, we can see how this works out if we read through the Scriptures. Number one, uh, those commandments function to restrain sinful people, don't they? Right now, all of a sudden, you might want to take advantage of someone in the, in the workplace, but there are regulations that keep you from that. You might want to take advantage of a vulnerable person. Right? You may want to do something to defraud your neighbor, but now there are consequences in place if you do that. And so those consequences restrain injustice and sin. So that's one of the functions of the law. Another function of the law is to reveal God's character. We've seen this all the way through. You read the holiness code in Leviticus, and you hear God say, I want you to be holy, and I want you to be holy because I'm God, and I'm holy, and you're my people, you're my representatives, and if you're going to represent me, you have to share my character, and that means you can't go around and trip blind people. That's in the Bible, Leviticus 19. It means you have to pay your workers on payday. You can't say, you know, sorry, I forgot to sign the check, or something like that. 
That's in the Bible, Leviticus 19. It means you don't make fun of the deaf. They can't hear you. What's the big deal? God doesn't take advantage of people who are vulnerable, and neither should his people, because he wants his people to share his character. God says, you must be holy, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Reveals the law, reveals God's character. We have to live this way. This is the character of our lives, because it's the character of our God. And there's a one-to-one connection between those two points. So God wants his people to embody his character They don't know his character. They've been slaves in Egypt with millions of gods all over the place, more gods than you can keep up with, let alone worship or revere. And now there's this one God, and he's not like any of them, and it's going to take some time to learn what he's like. And so he gives them his Torah, his instruction, his commandment, and it reveals his character. Now, he doesn't just sort of write it out like a textbook, hey, I'm going to reveal my character, and I want you to share my character, and so here's these bullet point things. Right? It takes time for them to, like, and, you, and they learn through practice and they learn through doing. That's what's revealed. And in that process of revealing God's character, the law, this is the third function. So if you're keeping up with this, number one, it restrains injustice and sin. Number two, it reveals God's character. Number three, it reveals our fallenness. Because as we see God's character and as we strive to embody God's character, we discover there is a principle within us that hinders that. And we can't do it. That principle is articulated by Paul in Romans 7, with this inner conflict. And he's describing the experience of someone who is being convicted of sin, but who has not yet been joined to Christ. He talks about, I know the things I'm supposed to do, and I can't do them. I don't do them. I choose not to do what I ought to do. He's not describing Christian experience in this slavery to sin. He's describing a person who is being convicted and drawn but has not yet been joined to Christ because this person is still a slave to sin. The believers, Romans 6, Romans 8, are not slaves to sin even though we may choose to sin. And so there's this conviction that happens. I see the law. I know the law. I want to obey the law, but I don't have, my desire isn't enough. My wants aren't enough. I always end up desiring something else more. And I go to those things. And this is this problem that Paul is articulating. The law is weak because it can't change hearts. This is what Ezekiel was talking about in chapter 36 when he says to the Hebrew people, I'm going to bring you back from exile and I'm going to cleanse you and then I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you can obey my statutes, it says. And so again, there's this this long-term project of realizing, like, people are sinners and we need some protections around that, restraint, injustice, and sin. God is holy and His law shows us a portrait of His character. We are not, because He's called us to embody His character, and century after century after century, we have failed miserably and we are finally beginning to realize that we do not have what it takes in our hearts to honor Him. The law is weak. It is weakened, Paul says, by the flesh. We're going to talk a lot about the flesh in just a few minutes. And so God does what the law can't do. He sends his son. And his son deals with sin. The law can't deal with it. It can tell you. Here's how it works with the law. Hey, sinner! Sorry, can't do anything about it. Feels like a bum deal, doesn't it? The law identifies our sin, but it can't free us from it. It names our sin, it convicts us of sin, it condemns our sin, but it can't do anything about it. Paul says, Jesus came, God sent his son to do what the law could not do, to deal with sin. And brothers and sisters, that is not to be missed. Jesus Christ deals with sin. He does not ignore it. He does not sweep it under the rug. He came deal with it. And you get a sense for how important that is to him when you consider his nail-scarred hands and the lashes on his back and the thorns on his brow 
coming into the season of Lent now, aren't we? And we're going to be thinking about, as Good Friday approaches, how Jesus suffered for us. How important is it to Jesus to deal with sin important enough that he would carry the physical turmoil and torture of the cross and everything goes with it and the spiritual turmoil of the weight of the world's sin. How important is it to him? Unspeakably important. Unspeakably important. So Jesus comes to deal with sin, to forgive us. But that forgiveness is not the end of the project, is it? That forgiveness is not the end of the story. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We celebrate that. We give thanks for it. But for Paul, that's the beginning of the path. It's the beginning of the journey, not the end of the journey. So what's next? What's the purpose of our salvation? Chapter 8, verse 4. Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. He deals with sin. Verse 4, so that, anytime you see those two words, so that, it means here's the reason, here's the purpose, here's the long-term goal, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now that's probably surprising to us, because we thought Jesus fulfills the law, so we don't have to, right? Because we can't. And yet Paul says Jesus came so that the thing the law couldn't do, like, like make us able to keep it, Jesus comes and enables us to keep it. Not just enable, like that's the purpose. Jesus, God sent his son to do what the law couldn't do so that the righteous, the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Got any us's out there? Nobody wants to own this one, huh? <laughs> Wait, you mean I got a righteous requirement of the law, preacher? That sounds pretty heavy. What's going on there? But this is what I mean, this this is the text that we have to reckon with that the Lord has given us. How do we keep the law? We've just spent an entire Old Testament learning we can't. What how does this work? And to flesh that out. Paul introduces a contrast. And the contrast he introduces is a contrast between what he calls the flesh and the spirit. Uh, some of your translations may not say flesh, they may say sinful nature. Um, that is a, an interpreter's decision. Some, you know, different translations render these different ways. Uh, I like the way the New Revised Standard Version does this. Flesh is just kind of a, uh, a literal translation, and we have to, like, from the context, figure out what that means and what's going on there. So there's this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And the spirit is God's spirit, and the flesh is a little more complicated. The flesh, for Paul, is this reality, this principle, this character that accounts for our corruption, right? I'm hesitant to use the language of sinful nature because it makes it sound like to be human is you know, just bad. If to be human is to have a sinful nature, then that, well, I mean, like you need to get rescued from your humanity if you want to get rid of that sinful nature. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is, like, you're a human being, and your humanity's been corrupted. You don't need to get set free from your humanity. Your humanity, humanity needs to get set free from corruption. That may be dense. I'm going to say it one more time. It's not about to be human is to have a sinful nature that are co-equal, where we have to be set free from our humanity to be set free from sin. That's not what's going on. It's that God made us human in his image, our humanity has been corrupted by sin, and the solution is not to be free of our humanity to be free of sin, it's for our humanity to be free of sin, for our corruption to be reversed. So Jesus comes fully human in the likeness of sinful flesh, not 
sinful flesh, but the likeness of sinful flesh. That's one of Paul's ways of saying he's fully human, but he's untainted. He's fully human, but he's not corrupt. He's fully human, but he's not subject to this flesh thing. And when he talks about, when Paul talks about flesh, he's not talking about skin here. He's not talking about physicality. He's talking about the corruption of our natures. We don't need to think of sin as natural. We need to think of sin as unnatural. Redemption is being brought back to a natural, like what God intends for human life. A friend of mine wrote a book on sin. I don't know if he set out to be an expert on sin, but, you know, he is, I guess. The title of the book is Against God and Nature. Because the point is, sin is not natural. Like all through the Bible, sin is never portrayed as natural. It's dehumanizing. It's unnatural. It's subhuman. It's, it takes our humanity and it corrupts our humanity. And we don't need to be set free from our humanity. We need our humanity to be redeemed. And so the Son of God became human. So he could take human beings who were corrupted and set them free from corruption to be fully human. Holiness is about becoming fully human. Holiness is about the restoration of the image of God in human beings. Sin is about subhuman existence. It's dehumanizing. When I first began to wrestle with that, it was a big shift for me. Because I think we really tend to sort of associate so deeply our humanity and our sinfulness that it's very hard to think about those it's very hard to think about humanity not sinful. The trouble with that is Jesus, fully human in every way. He takes on everything it means to be you and me so that he can redeem everything it means to be you and me. He atones, he forgives, he redeems, he takes condemnation away. so that our humanity can be made whole. So you can become the human being God intended you to be. So that your humanity can be free from corruption and experience his best. And he does that through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. Jesus makes us whole. He heals us by giving his spirit not to walk beside us, but to dwell within us. Jesus forgives us so the Spirit can transform us. And again, the whole Trinity is at work. God sends the Son who atones for our sin, who takes away our condemnation, who gives us his righteous judgment and status, and then the Spirit renews us from the inside out. So flesh is that hard heart that Ezekiel is talking about. It needs to be transformed into a human heart, a soft heart that's malleable and responsive to God's commandments. Flesh is that principle where I come into the world where I want what I want. I don't care who gets hurt. I'm going to get what I want. It's that inward curvature of the heart that Martin Luther described in the Reformation. And transfer, the transformation that the Spirit works is taking away that bent to sin. That's Charles Wesley's language. We come into the world with hearts bent to sin, and Jesus bends them back in love to God and neighbor. So what does this look like? The flesh isn't a sinful nature, it's the corruption of our human nature. It's ugly. Like Corruption is a dirty word, isn't it? We talk about corruption in politics, we talk about corruption in athletics, we talk about corruption in different kinds of different kinds of corporations, markets, all kinds of things. We need to face the reality that corruption is something we all have to deal with. Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh, right, the, the mind that is given to that corruption is death. It is hostility to God. Verse 7, it does not submit to God's law. In fact, it can't. 
the flesh isn't willing to submit to God's law, and it's not able to submit to God's law. And again, we need to reckon with that. We're not going to be soft on sin. We're going to acknowledge the fact that we come into the world unable to please God. Like nobody, nobody comes into the world able to please God. We don't come into the world neutral, and we're pretty good while we're, you know, babies. Then we get to be toddlers and a little bit older and a little bit older, and then all of a sudden, you know, we drift into sin from neutrality to sinfulness and get corrupt later. Everybody comes in, me. I'm looking out for number one. It's hard to see that in the cute little babies. Because they're cute little babies. But deep inside that cute little baby is a bent to sin. And they don't become sinners because they sin. They sin because they come into the world corrupt. That's true for all of us. It's not very palatable. We'd rather not hear it. But our vision of God's redemption will be truncated if we don't know how bad the situation is. So the Spirit comes to free us from the flesh. When I was reading this, I said that word at the beginning of verse 9 was one of the most crucial words in the whole, the whole text. Three letters for us. Two letters in the Greek, if you're interested. Even few, shorter word. But... Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. But, however, you are not in the flesh. And what's the implication of that? Those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. Implication, you are able to what? Please God. Bummer. Ah, <laughs> oh, you means I don't have any excuses for my sin anymore, right? Because last week I did some things and I kind of made myself feel better by saying, well, I'm only human, I'm a sinner. You mean that's not an excuse anymore, Paul? Yes, Paul says, that's exactly what I mean. Your humanity is no excuse for your sin. My humanity is no excuse for my sin. You are not in the flesh. If you've been joined to Jesus, if His redemptive love has been cast over you, if His grace has washed you whiter than snow, you are not in the flesh. Paul says, instead you are in the Spirit. And the Spirit is very different than the flesh. If the flesh is death, the Spirit is life. If the flesh is sin, the Spirit is righteousness. And when the Spirit of God dwells in you, he says in verse 9 and 10 and 11, even though your body is decaying and you are mortal, the Spirit gives life and the Spirit works newness. And you're not a slave, you're not a debtor to the flesh, to that principle of corruption. It is not your master. Now the Holy Spirit who dwells in you is able to make you able to please God. Think for a minute about this language of indwelling. This is very prominent. Very prominent. I want to, I'll say this as well, friends. You know, I don't burden you with Greek very often. Uh, I will say this, that Romans chapter 8 is one of the most lovely things I've ever read in the, in, in the Greek language. In any language. It's beautiful. And Paul sort of takes this language of indwelling spirit and he emphasizes it in ways in the original text that really it's hard to re re reproduce in the English text. And so I want to say to you, this image of the spirit, not just beside me, but dwelling in me is something Paul longs to emphasize. He calls it the in you spirit. The indwelling in you spirit. And you just get these words about the, in, the interior presence of the Spirit just get piled on top of each other. And he'll take you know, the, the Spirit and he'll split up the Spirit and stick in in the middle of it. The in you Spirit. It's in you. It's like he's not just hanging out. He's not just over there in the corner. He shows up and takes possession of your body and resides within you. And in doing that, the in you Spirit is able to reproduce the character of God because now God lives in your body. This interiority is a massive deal for Paul. It's crucial. The interior presence of the Spirit enables 
sinners, former slaves to the flesh, to actually please God. Like you couldn't do it before, now he says you can. So what does this look like? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? And this is a crucial piece, friends. A lot of folks think the evidence of the Holy Spirit is some gift of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues or something. For Paul, like those things can be falsified. Not That doesn't mean they're bad, and he commends the gifts of the Spirit and he encourages people to consider those things. But you know, you can't fake the fruit of the Spirit, can you? Like, Love, joy, peace, patience. Patient, like you can't, like either you're patient or you're not. Like there's no, I'm going to pretend I'm patient, but I'm really, you know, like you can't, you can't fake the fruit, can you? Like you can't pretend to be joyful. You might like exude some false face, but if you're not, if your heart isn't consistent with that, you're not actually joyful. You're, you're, not, you're not faking it. You can't fake the fruit. Generosity. Right? There are plenty of people who give and don't want to. They're not generous. What Jesus wants is, is hearts that overflow in generosity. And you can't fake that, can you? You can't fake the fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the Spirit who indwells us produces this fruit, transforms us. Right? So that, so that people who were once slaves to corruption and unable to please God, now can actually embody his character. And that's what Paul means when he talks about the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. The law was always about God's people embodying God's character. Always. The Spirit of God makes that possible. And if we don't have this full orb division of the whole Trinity at work in us, if we focus only on the forgiveness of our sins and freedom from condemnation, we might make the mistake of thinking that's all God wants to do. Forgiveness is crucial, but it's not the end of the story. The Spirit of Jesus died so you could get set free from the corruption of your sinful nature, of your, of your human nature. Jesus died so that we could be set free from the flesh. So that we could please God. And the in you spirit, the indwelling spirit, is the one who does that work. Now we've been talking a lot this series, Becoming Whole, about what it means to be bodies. Uh, we've talked about how brains and neurons, like the neurons in our brains can connect and, and how habits and, and holiness, you know, well, sin can be deeply formed in our brains, and holiness can be deeply formed physiologically when neurons connect and get stronger. I want us to spend a little bit of time reflecting about a particular application. There are lots of applications. Everything in life can actually be an application because our brains are involved in everything we do. But today I want to talk about um, screens. Anybody got one of these in your pocket? All of us? Nobody wants to smile at this one because they know what's coming. <laughs> so we all have screens in our pocket. Billions of people around the world look at this, the first thing they do every day and the last thing they do before they go to bed at night. Billions of people. The question I want to ask is, and let me just say this up front, it's not bad to have a cell phone. I've got mine here. It's not a sin on a cell phone, I don't think. What I want us to do is invite the question, Here's this thing that is ubiquitous in my life. It is always there. It buzzes, I go to it. Does that help me walk in the Spirit? Or does it create hindrances? It's not often we do like really dive deep specific applications because typically like texts get applied to different people in different ways. Like you may be having an issue at work and you may be having an issue at home and we kind of want to make space for those broad applications. The reality is everybody's got one of these, and it applies to all of us. So before we dig into the question about the spirituality, how phones affect our relationship with the spirit and spirituality, I want us to take a few minutes to talk about how screens shape our brains. So when you're on a social media platform and uh, you hear that buzz, Somebody liked something on Instagram, Facebook, 
Uh, there are dozens of them I've never gotten on, so you just pick your favorite one, and you know it buzzes at you, and what do you do? You go see what the notification is about. YouTube will let you know that the channels to which you subscribe have just released a new video, or Hope Hole UMC is going live in a few days, so tune in. We want to check it. When that buzz happens, there's a chemical reaction in your brain, in my brain, in our brains. We get a hit of a chemical called dopamine. We like dopamine. It makes us feel good. When we're scrolling through the pictures, dopamine drip. When 78 people, I don't even know if that's a good number on social media anymore, I guess it depends on how many friends you have, like my profile picture, dopamine drip. Oh, did anyone leave a comment on the live stream today? Dopamine drip. Interesting thing about dopamine is it doesn't only show up when social media calls for our attention. It's the same thing your brain produces when you drink or have sex. Dopamine. Dopamine. So we need to understand that eight hours a day here is like eight hours a day on the bottle, chemically and biologically in our brain. Now, if you drank for eight hours a day, do you think it would help your ability to walk in the Spirit? Or hinder it? It's even worse for adolescents and children If we know that our brains respond to screens and social media the same way they respond to alcohol, then if I give my kids one of these and give them unfettered access to it, I might as well be giving my 10-year-old the keys to the liquor cabinet. Anybody feel good about that? It's even worse. I learned in January about a new science. It's not new, it's been around for a few decades. I just learned about it in January, so it was new to me. It's called captology. Anybody heard of captology? I hadn't either. Captology is a, an acronym, it stands for Computers as Persuasive Technology. So C-A-P-T, computers as persuasive, T, technology, and then you get the ology. And it is the science of how can we manipulate an app or a website to keep viewers there longer. So when Instagram first came out, it didn't have that little heart on it. And somebody at corporate said, you know, if we add that little heart, the like button, and uh, I post a picture, and you like it, and then I get a notification that you like it, I, I'm not on my phone right now, I'm not on the app right now, but I'll go pick it up and see who liked it, and now I'm on it when I wouldn't have been. And they tell us this increases our quality of life because we're more connected but for them, it's more about if we're going to sell ads, people have to be on the platform. So there are 2 billion people in the world with these in their pockets. There's about 50 or 100 people in California who manipulate all of the content that we receive in that way. So it's not simply that our brains react to our phones like alcohol, biologically, it's the fact that there are a handful of folks manipulating that process to increase our presence on the platforms. So that question about, you know, a few hours by the liquor cabinet is even worse because now you've got someone manipulating you. It's not just the matter that it's addictive, 
someone is manipulating the process intentionally to make us more given to it. I think we all know in our bones that's not healthy. It's even more telling, some of you may have seen the link I shared on social media the other day, uh, to know that the executives at the tech companies don't let their kids play with iPads. Steve Jobs would not let his, Steve Jobs, the guy who created iPad, wouldn't let his kids have one. The folks at Google spend a lot of money to send their kids to schools that will not let them have electronics in the classroom. It's interesting, isn't it? Because those products sell when states and governments write contracts to get the products in the classroom. But the folks who make the products won't put their kids anywhere near a classroom with one of those things in it. Do you let your kid drink at school? Or anywhere? <laughs> Ugh. Just let that settle for a second. Now, here's the thing. It's unrealistic to unplug. Like nobody, I don't expect anybody to walk out of this room today and just like send their phone back to Verizon. It's unrealistic to think that we cannot beat the system. The artificial intelligence anticipates where we're going to click and sends us the things we're going to click. But we can understand how our bodies work, understand how that's manipulated, and make some healthy steps so that us, so that we and our kids are able to cultivate life in the Spirit rather than hinder it. It was pointed out to me in January that the NFL has a concussion protocol, right? If someone gets hit and there's a fear of a concussion, they take certain steps and there are policies that sort of, guard. there's a dangerous situation. We've got, we've got a process in place to try to preserve health and bring people back to full health. Maybe we need a screen protocol. One suggestion uh, I heard over the week as I was reflecting on and preparing for this sermon, the guy said, go to your notification settings and turn off all the notifications that don't have an actual person behind them. The YouTube subscription notification, artificial intelligence, there's no person behind it. Uh, Facebook sends you a so-and-so posted in this group. There's an algorithm sending that to you. It's not an actual person. A text message, usually, <laughs> there's an actual person behind it. Sometimes they're automated. Voicemail, typically someone, if anyone actually still uses that, typically there's an actual person who wants to get our attention. Our uh, kids' baseball teams use Group Me. I left the notifications on on that one. Parents need to know which field we're at or something. There's an actual person over there trying to communicate. But there are hundreds, I mean, literally, like, literally, we have 400 apps or more on our phones, don't we? And if all of the notifications are on all the time, that means you have got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artificial intelligences vying for your attention. Is that a hindrance to a mind set on the spirit? Probably so. I'm going to read my Bible today. I'm going to spend some time praying. Oh, just a second, Jesus. 45 minutes later, oh, I don't have time anymore. I've got to get to work. Anybody ever have an experience like that? Can I walk in the spirit when I'm being manipulated by... A substance or a screen. Like we know the answer with the substance. 
can we transfer it to the screen? So maybe part of the protocol involves only notifications from actual people, you know? <laughs> if the point is to be connected to actual people, maybe that's a solution, or not a solution, but a step in the right direction. Another good um, practice, friends, is time limits, especially for kids. I get it. It's a great babysitter. It's also a slave master. Some time limits. Whatever they are, whatever's appropriate. Really crucial in making sure that those forming brains are not deformed. Studies have shown that if you look at kids who have far more attention uh, given to screens, there are parts of their brains that develop faster than they're supposed to and grow in relation to that. And, and, and it's, an, it's actually a, a deformation. Stunning, isn't it? If we just hand this device to our kids, we are literally deforming their body if it's prolonged and expensive. Some folks uh, set aside the first hour after they wake up and the last hour before they go to bed. No tech during the first hour. If I get up at 5.30, I'm not looking at a screen until 6.30. If I go to bed at 10, I'm not looking at a screen after 9. Just some space. Creating some space. Non-manipulable. Manipulatable. <laughs> space. Again, it's unrealistic that we're all just going to throw these things in the trash. But can we create some protocols? Can we create some safeguards? Can we put a lock on the cabinet for a little while? And it's okay to talk to our kids about this. We were sitting around the dinner table the other night uh, talking about screens. And uh, I was talking about some of the articles I'd read prepping for this sermon. And we just took the time to explain to our kids, like, the reason you can't drink until you're 21 is because the alcohol will deform your brain in its adolescent development period. You want your brain deformed? No, rather not. That's the reason. Same thing happens here. The reason we put limits and space around the use of technology is because we don't want to deform your brain. It's hard to love Jesus with a deformed brain. It's hard to be fully human with a deformed brain. So there's space, right? It's not just, no, you can't have that. Like, let's talk through it. Let's, let's see what this looks like. And remember, parents, you are your children's primary discipler. Your number one job on this earth is to make sure your kids learn how to trust Jesus. Your number one job on this earth is to make sure your kids know how to worship Jesus how to serve him in, in love. That's your response. That's your primary thing. That's my primary thing as a parent. And so I want us to sort of take this and set it in that context. Like, is this a tool that is helping me cultivate love for God in Christ and the Spirit in my kid? Or in me? Or is it hindering that? Everybody's going to answer that a little bit differently in terms of protocols and times. I'm not going to like lay out a list of regulations. I want to invite us to consider the principles. Let's just let's think through what it means to be made in the image of God. Let's think through what it means to be captive to the flesh. Let's embrace the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ forgave us, forgives us, so the Spirit can transform us. He wants to set us free from bondage to sin and death. He wants to bring us into life in the Spirit. He wants to help us walk in that. This metaphor of walking in the Spirit means it's not a one-off deal, like you got one foot in front of the other for a long time. And that means that we need to be able to identify things in our lives through the grace of God and the presence of the Spirit. Here's some things in your life that are hindering your ability to walk in the Spirit. And I suspect for two billion or more people around the world, 
we are carrying a massive hindrance in our pocket. Just a hunch. More than a hunch. The evidence is all over the place. Jesus forgives us so the Spirit can transform us to embody the character of God. This is about human bodies. And the invitation then is an invitation to God's best. Like life in the Spirit is God's best. Walking in the Spirit is God's best. Freedom from the flesh, friends, is God's best. That is not controversial. It should be exceedingly clear. Like sin and slavery to sin is not God's best. Freedom from that, life in the Spirit is God's best. It's what Jesus died for, to give us his best. It's why he forgives our sins, to give us his best in the Spirit. Make us a part of his family, to make us his brothers and sisters, children of his Father, indwelt by his Spirit. And that means making hard diagnoses and decisions about the things in our life that hinder that walk. Not for the sake of just doing away with something, but for the sake of receiving something, namely receiving God's best. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.